Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, as well as a description of a false allegation of sexual abuse, which contains some graphic sexual details. So some listeners may find this distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is an incredible man who has overcome a huge trauma and story of abuse in his life and has come out the other side with not only his mental health intact, but his children and has now turned it into a massive positive to help other men. Nathan Wilson is the founder of Dad's Advocates. Dad's Advocates is a social enterprise and platform that seeks to implement change in three areas of life. Firstly, they help separated dads create safe, consistent and meaningful relationships with their children by reducing parental conflict, creating workable co-parenting strategies and, if required, guiding dads through the process of family court. Second, they protect children's rights by instilling a child-centred approach to co-parenting, therefore reducing emotional harm on children by reducing parental conflict. Thirdly, they campaign for change in legislation, policies and attitudes towards dads and fathers. By challenging stereotypes and breaking down societal barriers to meaningful fatherhood, they are changing the conversation around treatment of fathers in the family court and wider society. Nathan's drive to create Dad's Advocates came from his own story of being domestically abused by his first wife, who claimed he had raped her and domestically abused her in order to gain custody of his children through the divorce process, which initially she succeeded with. Thankfully though, this story has a happy ending and despite a lengthy and exhausting back and forth legal battle, Nathan gained full custody of his children and has had more children with his second wife who he is now happily married to. In this episode we discuss this rollercoaster journey Nathan has been on, how he was broken and built himself back up again and how he used his experience to create Dad's Advocates. We then discuss the realities of the family court for fathers, how men are treated within it and the campaigning work he does to change that conversation. I've interviewed male guests about female domestic abuse before and this issue is happening in today's society, whether you want to believe it or not. So this is how my conversation with the brilliant and inspirational Nathan Wilson went. Nathan Wilson, my friend, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you and taking the time out of your whirlwind life of doing Dad's Advocates and being a father of a lot of children. As one of four myself, I know how busy you must be. So first of all, mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm great today. Thank you. And thank you for having me on today. It's a massive pleasure. I love talking to people, love telling my story. And yeah, let's crack on with it. Excellent, mate. I'm so excited to do this pod and give your platform some love as the work you're doing is, in my opinion, not just life-saving, but vital for improving society and the awareness that we have around men and the issues that affect men. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? And let's crack on. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
let's start your pod by talking about your mental health journey, mate, as this is where the bulk of your experiences and how it's shaped into Dad's Advocate and the drive for starting it came from. So before we talk about Dad's Advocates, we'll talk about your mental health journey. I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Nathan we meet here? Okay, so the Nathan we meet today, I'm 38 now, but my journey starts back way, way back. I am one of four, so my mum and dad had four boys. But since the age of three, my mum and dad fostered children. So we fostered 156 children. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, over a different lifespan. Most of them were girls because my mum had enough of boys. Like my mum always wanted girls anyway. She always told us she always wanted girls. And I think that always stuck in my mind. <laughs> so in the end, she did adopt three girls as well. So I've got three brothers and three sisters now. So it's a very large family. I must say I was probably the black sheep of the family. Being mm. the second boy... I was always the one getting into trouble. Always you know, the way. Yeah. yeah Second or, or third, or, normally the way, isn't it? I'm third, way. so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know. My older brother and my younger brothers, they were always in school. They were always goody two-shoes, should I say. But me, I, I was the one that was in detention or suspended or not even turning up for school. And I look back on that now and I regret it because it took a lot for me to overcome all that. You know what I mean? They, they say the early years of life are important and, and I wish I'd, I'd recognised that earlier then. But, you know, I got in with a... We call them the wrong crowd, but, you know, we were just little kids just being tearaways, you know what I mean? Rascals. Yeah, yeah rascals. We call them rascals. <laughs> <laughs> and it was always hard to try and get attention because, obviously, we're, we're foster children. A lot of them, I'm not saying all of them come from bad backgrounds, but a lot of them have difficulties and come from bad backgrounds. Mm. So you have to be really wary of what you say, what you do. And then when your mum and dad are focusing on them, and not in you, and you're like, well, I'm your. You feel jealous, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get jealous, you get jealous, and Mm. maybe that's why I decided to go the the way I did. So I think early on, I always felt a bit of an outcast within the family itself, even though today I'm the one that everyone comes to, like back then. Funny how, like me, mate, funny how these (laughs) things change. (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean? Like I said, it was always fighting for attention, and maybe that had a bit of a mental health effect on me. But obviously, when you're younger like that, you're just saying, well, you know, we're just kids, aren't we? And obviously, back when I was kids, there was no such thing as it wasn't really spoke about mental health and things like that. Do you know what I mean? So you don't realise that that's probably what it was all down to. So, when yeah. it comes to your education, because of that rebellious streak, shall we say, and the maybe lack of attention you paid to your studies, you actually left school with barely many grades, if at all, and you were still in that carefree, rebellious mindset. So where did you go from here? Yeah, so I either didn't turn up for my GCSEs or when I did, I just wrote my name on, you know, so it was a lot of ungraded or not even turned up. But straight from school, I was like, well, I need to do something. Like, school life isn't for me. Where all my friends stopped on to do sixth form and things like that, I went straight into work. So I got an apprenticeship as an electrical engineer, which was very good. At the time, I had two job offers for electrical engineers and I chose the one that was high money at the time because... Being 16, I was like, sweet, this is what... Of course, any money is good money, mate, isn't it? 152 quid a week, cash in hand, you know what I mean? I was like, buzzing. But I I still don't think I appreciated the opportunity I'd been given because I was still going to college. And back then it was easy to pass the grades because the government just wanted to give the money out. But, you know, and and I'd still mess about at work because I was still young and carefree. And like I said, I just didn't take the opportunity and run with it properly. So I think that was about a four-year apprenticeship which was good. So, you know, I, I come out of there and I'm like, I think I'm the dog's bollocks now. You know what I mean? I've 
I've got all this money behind You're me. Yeah, yeah, as we say in London slang terms. Yeah, yeah, I've got all this money. I've got a motorbike. I had everything I wanted. Like I just go out and I'd, you know when you see like rap music videos and they're, they're like swashing cash over strippers in a strip club. <laughs> that was literally me, like thinking I was the bee's knees. Like <laughs> you know what I mean. Five pound notes. Yeah, yeah, five pound notes going everywhere. <laughs> you know, how many pick mixes can I get? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, and after I passed my apprenticeship, I was like, sod this, I'm too good for you now. I'm going to move on and I'll move on to a better paid job. And looking back now, that was probably the worst mistake I ever made because I went out of my comfort zone. I went into a place of work where I couldn't act like that, but I was still acting like the rebellious kid. So after six months of probation, I failed my probation. Oh, wow. And it's the first time like since I've left school that I had a knockback. And I think that took a big hit on me as well. So around that time, I decided, right, I'm just going to change my career now. I'm just going to go into whatever job I can. And I started working for Toyota Manufacturing, like just building cars on production line. And it weren't until then that I met my now best mate, my brother, you know, my, my right-hand man, that I decided... It, I had to change my ways because the way I was living life wasn't great. You know what I mean? I was drinking a lot. I was sleeping around a lot. I, mean, I just didn't care. I was still living that carefree life. And I'm, I'm like at the age of, what, 20, 23 now. And at that time, you've got to start mm. taking life seriously. You, you know what I'm saying? And it took me a good year or so to actually settle down and and become a better human being. And then I lasted there about 13 years, I think I was there. I was a union rep. In fact, at one point, I was the youngest union rep there was at the time. I was a chair for the whole of East Midlands. I was the national rep. You know, I even went to places like Cuba to do voluntary work. So that's how much I changed my life a bit. But then towards the, I'd say about halfway through my Toyota career, I had a slight dip. You know, I think around the time my grandma died and my grand died. And I never got over that. Because from an early age, one of my granddads died before I was even born, so I never met him. And my other granddad died while I was about 12. So, like, my grandparents, my grandma and grandma, were, like, my two go-to people all the time. And I think when they passed, it just knocks them out of me that, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. So mm. then I went back into my rebellious ways to the point that I was stealing from my best mate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. And I'd gone back to that Jack the Lad era thinking you know I'm the bee's knees again which is then when I met the mum to my two children or two of my mm. children should I say and then that's when I ended up because I'd let my guard down and I was so in this depressive state before I met her I kind of let her abuse take over me you didn't see the red flags either I imagine no yeah. no red flags or even when my best mate mm. after all the here's the proof here's the powerpoint yeah. presentation yeah. yeah yeah you know what I mean and <laughs> Even after all of that, he's going, Nathan, this isn't right. You know what I mean? I was like, no, 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 I'm all right. I'm all right. I know what I'm doing, you know. So, yeah, so I spent about four years in a really serious, abusive relationship. Like, it wasn't physical. I think it got physical once, but other than that, it was emotional and financial and coercive control. And and I just didn't see it. I was still in that mindset. So I was just like, oh, no, this is love. This is how she shows her love. This is her love language. Yeah. Uh, you really were in a bad place, mate. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but then towards the end of that, just before we had my daughter, who my daughter is now, she was eight on Friday. So she's eight, eight a couple of days ago. So just before we had her, 
I was like at the mindset of like my mate had finally made me see all the flags. I was like, right, this is time I've got to get out. But rather than just getting out, I was like, well, I still need to get my leg over, so I'm still going to sleep with her because it's just easier than than not. Do you know what I mean? It's just going to cut out all the controlling behaviour and the abuse, so I might as well. And then I found out she was pregnant. So then I was like, well, well what do I do now then? On one hand, I need to leave her because it's not good for my mental health and, and everything I'm going through. But on the second hand, I need to be there for my kid. I mm. need to be a family unit. You know, I've grew up with a massive family unit, so I know how important family units are. So I stayed with her. Was it a mistake? Uh, I'd say no, not really, because I ended up having another child with her. <laughs> so literally three months after my daughter was born, she was pregnant again. When they say women are very fertile in the first couple of months after giving birth, I'm living proof it is. <laughs> like, like, it really is. And so, you know, now I've got one child and one on the way, but I'm still in this abusive relationship. When I say abusive, I'm like, I'd go down to the gym with my best mate. We'd be in the gym and she'd be ringing me 30 times within 10 minutes. Like, I'm at the gym for an hour. Like, what's so important? Do you know what I mean? Like, where are you? What are you doing? Well, you know I'm at the gym. I'm taking photos just to send her that I'm in the gym. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not one. Of, I'm like, if you're in the gym, you, you don't have your phone out in the gym. So at this point, I'm like going, I'm like that selfie loving person, like living life, looking like. But it was just to try and stop me going home to a, an abusive household. But then while she was pregnant with my son, she must have been about six months pregnant. I was like, no, that's it. I'm gone. I had to go. I, I had to get out. There was no way I could stay there anymore. And I literally just moved on the next street. I found a house thinking, right, you know, well, I'm close enough to my daughter. I'm still close enough to her because she's pregnant with my son. And it still wasn't good enough. She'd be like walking past my house, seeing if I was there, seeing if the car's there. And if the car wasn't there, she'd ring me. Where are you? And if I didn't answer the phone, oh, you don't want to talk to your daughter? Well, she's six months old. She don't talk. You know what I mean? I'm just going to I'm just gonna look at a camera screen at her and, and mm. do nothing. You, you know what I mean? So even though I'd left the relationship, I was still being controlled and still being abused. And my mental health was still going downhill. And then... My son was born seven and a half weeks early. So he was born premature. And then that also had a knock-on effect to my headspace. I just can't believe that this tiny little four-pound son is in a hospital feeding tube. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, where do I go from here? I can't see a way out of it now. So, yeah. And then I finally, like, when my son came out of hospital, I was like, look, I need to move away totally. Like, I can't be on the next street anymore because... I can't be worried about you walking past my house. I can't be worried about you just knocking on my door. Even though I'm not doing anything and I've got nothing to hide. I was just like, I didn't want that control anymore. So I literally moved 10 minutes down the road. But then that's when she'd be ringing me saying, the kids are real. The kids are going in hospital. You need to come around quick. I was like, oh. you know what I mean? So you go around there, you get there for the hospital. And like the daughter's got cold. I'm like, well, you know, that's just a way of controlling me even more. And then to the point where I was like, no, this ain't working anymore. So... I left and I moved 64 miles away. I was that person that I was just going to move further and further until I got away mm. from the, the abuse. And I'll always remember. So this is when my mental health really took a big, big, big hit. And I, and I had all the suicidal thoughts and, and the proper demons. You know when they say you've got proper demons? So this point is when I started having the proper demons. I was in Lincoln, where I live now, and I was in Sainsbury's. It was quarter past seven at night. I was walking around, I was with my now wife, my partner at the time, 
walking around Sainsbury's, you know, we just moved to Lincoln and I picked up a black Dolce Gusto machine. Like, I don't even drink coffee, but I was like, I need that in my life. I need that Dolce <laughs> Gusto machine. I don't know why. I just need it. So like, well, I can have hot chocolate. So that is cool. And as I picked it up, my phone kept ringing. And I was like, oh, it's quarter past seven. And, and it was a kid's mum. It's quarter past seven at night. If it's that important, she'll leave a message or she'll text me. So I just ignored it. And as I caught up with my partner, the phone kept ringing. And I looked at it and it was a message. And it was a picture message. And it was my son, who must have been about five months at the time. He was then in hospital with a third degree burn to his leg. With no real explanation how it happened. Like there was three different stories that floated around. So my view is, potentially, it was done on purpose to get my attention. But I Holy shit. But I can't prove that. Do you know what I mean? So at this point, so when I was younger, being the tearaway kid I was, I was angry a lot. So at this point, I'm stood in Sainsbury's and I fling the trolley across the aisle and I go to store my The coffee machine's gone. The coffee machine's gone, mate. The coffee machine's gone. It's, it's gone into like the fruit and veg bit. Like, just got a new home in the fruit and veg. <laughs> and like, my partner said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go and get her. You know, she, she's done something to my son. I can't let this go. And at that point, she says, don't do anything stupid. Stay here and get your mum. So obviously I got my mum. My mum only lived 10 minutes away from the hospital where my son was. My mum went and seen him, made sure he's all right. Spoke to the social services that were there and the doctors. But because I didn't go to the hospital, I then got a message saying, if you can't be here for your son now, never come back for your kids at all. So now I'm stopped seeing my kids. And that's when I take a massive dive. This is the point now where I'm going, holy shit, what do I do? I've lost the two most precious things in my life. And you can't just walk in into a house and pick them up and take them with you. So I went into this state of, I'd say manic depression. I'd go to Aldi and my weekly shop would be packets of brioche rolls. And I'd have a cupboard in the kitchen and they were just stacked up, lined up nicely with brioche rolls. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd take one, eat it on my way to work, have nothing to eat all day at work, come home, take another one, eat one for my dinner, and lie on the sofa. And that was literally my routine. So when I was in this state, I dropped from just over 14 stone to seven stone. Wow. When I say I became half the man I was. Literally. I literally was half the man I was. And, you, you know, I've got pictures to prove it. And I look back on them pictures now and I think, what the hell? I, I, what was going on? Your but, self-harm. That was it, self-harm, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Subconsciously. Yeah, yeah. I hit that self-destruct button. I didn't care for the world. You know, if I've not got my kids, what have I got? I've got nothing. And anyone with kids knows what it feels like that if you're away from your kids for a bit, I mean, not so much now. Someone please take them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Someone take them for a weekend. Give me a break. <laughs> but back then, that was it. That's all I ever wanted to be. Growing up with all them foster children, all I ever wanted to be was a dad. Like my mum was a childminder as well, so I was always around kids. So, you know, all my life, I knew I wanted to be a dad. But now all of a sudden I am a dad. I can't be a dad. All because I didn't go to that hospital one day. But if I did go to that hospital, it's not what would have been in the best interest of my son and my daughter. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so I hit that manic state of depression. No one could get through to me. My mates would invite me out for dinner. I'd be like, no, I'm not coming out for dinner. 
Are you coming out for a drink? No, I'm not coming out for a drink. Everyone that knows me knows I'm a big foodie. I'll eat and eat and eat just because pff, I love my food. You know what I mean? So if all I'm eating now is this one brioche roll with about four chocolate chips in, that I'm having two a day, like, yeah, it was mental. And I look back now and, and, I, and I keep the pictures on my phone to remember where I've come from. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I often look back and think, you know, this is where I am now. Like, I'm back up to my 14 and a half stone and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a really good place now. But to get to there, it was hard work because I didn't know how to control my life. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I wouldn't let my friends in. You know, I, I had a two bedroom flat and I was sleeping on a sofa. And it wasn't even a three-seater sofa. It was a two-seater sofa. So I was like proper curled up on it. <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? Fetal position, yeah, all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it, it was, wasn't was very nice. You know, the thoughts that go through your head are, are just mad. And, and I never thought I'd be that person that ever would ever have them kind of thoughts. I was always a happy-go-lucky chappy. But even though I was fighting for attention, like my rebellious streak was my happy-go-lucky. I was, I was chilled. I was always the center of attention always a class clown and now i'm i'm like nothing mm. to the point that i'd even go to work and i'd be at work at half six in the morning and no one would talk to me till 10 o'clock because like everyone's going well we're not talking to him in the morning just don't do it like no one would even say morning like, even in the team briefings they'd just write it on the board for me like nathan's read it but that was literally my life and and this big corporation as well and i had responsibilities and you know, it, it was just madness because also at that point as well, so even though I wasn't seeing my children, like, and you probably heard this, the cliche is, why should I pay the CSA if I'm not seeing my children? Like, I was paying, like, £100 a week and I wasn't able to see my children for no reason. Like, I'm, I'm a good dad. But everyone that sees me today, no one can tell me that I'm not a good dad because I'm an absolutely brilliant dad. And that's not just me. You've got the PowerPoint. You've got the PowerPoint there. The good one now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And I just couldn't be that dad that I always wanted to be or always wished I was. And I think that's why I was just going down and down. And it wasn't until one day that my mate just sat me down and said, Nathan, what the hell are you doing? Look at you. You're seven stone wet through. Where's this come from? This is Chris, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah my mate Chris. Yeah, Chris. He's like my guardian angel. That like, literally... He could tell you stories about how I've upset him, how I've upset his wife. His wife didn't talk to me for about a year because I upset her that much. Like, they would still go round around. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And like I said, I've stole from him and his wife. And and I think the problem was I was watching how he was with his children. And I was thinking, I can't be like that with my children. This is so unfair. So, yeah, I was just self-destruct. But he sat me down one day and said, Nathan, what are you doing? Get out there. Get your kids back. Pick yourself back up and just pat being an arsehole. Basically, that's all he said. Hard truth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I, you need I to hear it. the hard truth because a lot of people were just pussyfooting around me mm. and just sidestepping me and just, you know, just let me be what I am. But the hard truth hit home. And then, yeah, from that day, I just built myself back up. Before we talk about the custody battle, I've got two questions I want to ask about here. The first one is, when your ex-wife stopped letting you see your kids, she also, I believe I'm right in saying, made false accusations that not only you domestically abused her, but also sexually abused her. Yeah. So, A, how did you feel 
when this was made? And did people in your social circle believe her? Okay, so I'll do the reverse question. So, okay, no one in my social circle believed her. That's good because everyone knows who I am as a person. That is not me at all. How I approach the accusations, well, <laughs> I actually rang the police myself and says, "Look, this is what I'm being accused of." You know what I mean? Because even though she was making the accusation, she was making it to people, her friends, her families, my friends, my family, like the Facebook world, the social media world. You know what I mean? She, she never actually went to the police. So for me, it was like, well... You could have sued for libel then, really. <laughs> yeah, I could have done. So for me, I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to tackle this head on. You know, and I, I'd spoke to, to Chris about it. And I'd spoke to my partner about it. And it was decided that, no, I was going to report it to the police. So basically what happened was, I'll tell you a classic story. And this is the gospel truth. I rang the police and said, this is what I'm being accused of. I'm being accused of pushing her on her bed, getting and sorry, sorry for being a bit graphic. Okay. Okay. So I'm just putting the warning out there. Pushed me on the bed, got his cock and shoved it in my mouth so hard I was gagging, I was choking, I feared for my life. Like that is what she was literally telling everyone. So then the police went around and took a statement, and like she gave a cracking story. She could tell you what I was wearing. She could tell you what was on the telly. She could tell you what time of day it was. She could tell you exactly where I was. But the classic thing is, at that time, the time, the date, what I was wearing, I was 68 miles away in ZZ's <laughs> eating a carbonara. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, and it was classic. I don't even know why she picked that time and date, but that time, like I said, I was enjoying a nice meal. Carbonara, garlic bread, pint of cider. I was Your like, alibi was set, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the police came round and like took a statement from me. I was like, "Oh right, is that the time and date?" Oh, you know, here's my receipt for ZZ's. Go and check the CCTV as well. I'm like, boom, got you. So they went and did that, and then they went back to her again and said, "We just want to double check your statement." So she was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and she told virtually the same story but with a bit of a difference. And then the police said, "Well, we've got evidence that he he wasn't even in the county. He was 68 miles away." Eating a carbonara, not even, in, not even in the area, in the yeah, county, you not know. Even in the county, you know what I mean? I was just like miles away, and her response to the police was, "Oh well, he he reported it, so I just went away along with the story." I was like, "What? Are you being serious?" And to this day, nothing ever came to her because of it. Like the false allegations, nothing. Wow. I'm not wishing that they had done, but I'm just saying, how can you go from making you could have ruined my life? Like my life could have been ruined for good with an allegation like that. In a way, he could have killed you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you really definitely. did the long... Yeah. But like she'd accused me as well of hitting her with a sledgehammer. This was after I'd built myself back up. So she was like, oh, he's hit me with a sledgehammer. I'm like, she literally was like six stone wet through as well. So I was like, if I hit you with a sledgehammer, a 14 stone bloke hitting you with a sledgehammer, it'd hurt. <laughs> you, mm. yeah, I'd take your head off. But that story kept changing. First, it was... I smacked a phone out of Rand with the sledgehammer. Then it was, I took a phone out of Rand, put it on the coffee table and smashed it with the sledgehammer. And then it was, I smashed her in the face with the sledgehammer. I was like, your story just keeps changing. Like, if you're going to lie and give an allegation, at least make sure you know what the allegation is. So yes, I had all them allegations as well. But because I knew they wasn't true, I wasn't going to let that affect me. I'd gotten out of the mental 
dark place I was in and I was on the up and up again. And I just knew that I either had to tackle these problems head on or let it affect me again. And for me, I had good people around me again. My good friends, like I said, Chris, his wife, Emma, my partner, they never left me through any of this. So I knew that I had the backing of the people that cared most for me. You're and, quite lucky in that sense because it doesn't yeah. happen to all men. Yeah. No, because like, I'd pushed a lot of people away. But in doing that, what I realised was I'd pushed away the people that didn't add value to my life. Right. And that's the way the I emotional lived. vampires, as Mike Tyson used to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this is this is how I live my life now. If you don't add value to it, I don't really need you in it. Like I said, years ago, I always wanted all the attention. I wanted a group of mates, not friends. And now I've got a small circle of friends, but not many mates. Because like it's a friends, mm, it's a friends that mean more to you and have always got your back no matter what. Like I said, Chris will tell me the hard truth no matter what. And I'll love him always for it. And I believe that everyone needs one good friend like Chris. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think I'm that friend to a lot of people, which yeah. is uh, which means sometimes I don't get the hard truth myself, but maybe I should. <laughs> Before we talk about the custody battle, mate, I just want to ask, have you ever thought about the psychological reasons why she did that? For example, was it narcissistic personality disorder? Was it something completely different? Was it, I don't know. I'm spitballing here, but have you ever thought about that? So yeah, I, I have thought about it a lot of times, and like she, she never had the best upbringing. I mean, I'm not going to use these excuses, but like years ago, I used to hate her for it, but now I feel sorry for her. Okay, so she also has two other daughters from previous relationships, but one of them was from, well, what she says, at the time was from a rape. So you know, maybe that had an effect. You know, she she was kind of the black sheep of her family as well. So maybe that had an effect and maybe she was looking out for a desire to be loved and wanted because she didn't get it when she was younger. And I've thought about this a lot and that's probably why I don't hate her anymore. You know, years ago, like back when all it, all of it was happening and, and I'd gone through my manic state and through the custody battle, as we'll talk about soon, I hated the woman. Like I hate a very strong word. I despised her, but now I don't. I've got over that. I, I won't forgive her, and I'll, I won't forget what's happened. But I don't hate her anymore. I'm like I'm, I'm too old for hate now, and I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of why she did what she did. And to be fair, right now, I don't even care if I ever find out. Probably back then it, it would have been nice to have known why, but now I'm not even bothered. I'm just like mm, it's no. a good place to be, mate. I'm Sounds like you've like, made no, peace with it. I'm just chilled. Mm. I'm. You, you have to make peace, otherwise. You're letting, like, 50 Cent says, someone living in your head rent-free. I'm not like that anymore. So many people have took up my headspace. And if I'm letting people take up my headspace, my kids aren't getting the best version of me. And obviously, what I do, people aren't getting the best version of me if I let people in my head all the time. So I've got a very good barrier now of, like, I'm, I'm in a proper place now where I zen out all the time and I zone out. And, you know, I, I know how to live my life now. That I don't care about things like that anymore let people come and attack me now, like I'm not going to fight back because I know how to fight against it all without being that angry, hateful, resentful person. And that's where I am with it. I'm, I'm, up, I'm, I'd say I'm kind of at peace with it. Maybe before I'm on my deathbed, I'd like to know, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. So, mm. you know, I just have to move on. Let's talk about the custody battle now and family court, because I think a lot of people will see what happens to the family court from perhaps a mother's perspective 
or they might just see it in the papers. And the dad story, I don't, especially the bad ones, don't really get told that much. So tell me about this and how it affected your mental health, how it affected your families and, and everything in between. Okay, so, yeah. Oh, where do I start with the custody battle? Oh, man. So I was a big believer that you needed to spend a lot of money in court to win a custody battle. And I know that many dads think the same as well. You talk to any dad out there, and a lot of them were like, I can't afford to go to court. I can't afford it. And and that was the mindset I was at. So obviously, for years gone by now, we've lived in this stigma where it's always the mum gets the children and the dads become weekend dads. And I was under that pressure as well. And i tell you how I, I come away from that impression, because now I know differently. But I'll, I'll, I will get up that in a bit. So I was like, look, I've got some money saved up. You know, I was in a good job at Toyota. I've got some money saved up. I can beg, borrow. I can steal the rest. It's not a problem. I'll go back to my old life. You know, I, I can make money. If I need to make money, I, I can make money. If you I can hustle. Get, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I, I was a proper hustler when I was younger. I can hustle again when I'm older. It's not a problem. I'll make the money. So the solicitor I had was ranked in the top three in the UK. Okay. So I'm talking like £350 an hour. During my custody battle, I spent £80,000, okay, in saving, stealing, borrowing to the point that, you know, it broke us and I went bankrupt, okay. And it was hard because I only got every other weekend with that. So I'd spent months and years in the court system, only fighting and only getting every other weekend. I was like, what dad wants that, Okay. And I was allowed, allowed a couple of school holidays and, and things like that. But it's because the court see weekends as meaningful time. Okay. So they don't see Monday to Friday as meaningful time. So they always say that mums and dads need to split the weekends. So that's why a lot of dads become weekend dads. Because it's just meaningful contact. But like I said, I'll talk about it again in a bit. And I always remember, even after I'd spent the £80,000 and got every other weekend and school holidays, I took my children to France, okay? And I remember I was sat in Euro Disney with the kids. I had my daughter on my shoulder. We were watching the parade. Elsa was blowing me a kiss and things like that. I was looking at my daughter going, look, Elsa's blowing me a kiss like she was loving it. And I got a phone call from the solicitor. Like, I'm on my holiday. Like, what, what do you want? And the kids' mum had reported me for abducting the kids and taking them away. Holy shit. So now I'm being warned that when I come back, I'm going to have border control taking me. And I needed to ring them when I got there because I had to have court orders to prove I could take them. But yeah, she was that bitter and twisted and that upset that, you know, she's a mum and I'm not knocking her. She's a mum on benefits. And like I said, I don't knock that. But... She couldn't give the kids what I could give them. So she was jealous. So, yeah, like I said, yeah, she ran border control. She had kidnapped the kids and I adopted them. That's serious, serious stuff, man, to ring border control. Yeah, yeah. So, literally, when we come back on the Euro Tunnel, we got took aside. And, you, you know, it's, it's not nice for the children. No, of course that, not. Like, That's traumatising for them. They're yeah. thinking, what's happening to daddy? Yeah, like, I'm, are you a criminal? I'm, All this I'm, stuff. I'm yeah. like, let, just give me two minutes. Let me go and get the kids some dinner. I put the kids in the cafe, I pay for dinner and I'll come back. Come and watch me pay for dinner if you want. You know what I mean? So I've literally got like two police officers watching me pay for dinner so I can walk back what out. What did they think? Did they know or did they think look, this was... Look, lucky enough, they're only like three. And no, I meant the police officers. The police. What did they think? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to take it all seriously. 
but I'm like going, I've got all the passports, I've got... So then I had to bring like the solicitor, like going, I need all these court orders sent over, like, ASAP, because otherwise I'm going to be stuck here for... Like, I'm in Folkestone now, my kids are having dinner, you ain't got long to get me out of here. Mm. But yeah, that's the sick games that she was playing. <laughs> and to be fair, when I was watching the parade and the solicitor around me, they were like, we can't do anything until you paid us. I was like, well, how much do you need? And they're like, we need a thousand pounds. I'm like, what? So I'm literally watching the parade, door on my shoulder, reading the card details out in the middle of Euro Disney. I don't even you know. You're like this, muffled. Yeah, yeah. So like no, one no, no one's hearing my bank code. <laughs> but yeah, and they were some of the games that were being played all the time during the whole Krusty battle. You know, so all in all, up until October 2022, I've been in court 28 times with my kid's mum. So the court battle is the most stressful thing you'll ever do because I was part of the problem as well because what I did was I'd fight against her and she'd fight against me. None of us put the children first and that, and that was a big problem. So, yes, I spent this £80,000. I got every other weekend, a couple of school holidays. Oh, was I happy? Not really. You know, I'm now going bankrupt. I only get to see my kids a couple of times a month. What do I do now? I was like, sod it. I'm going to research the system. I'm going to research what's happened over the years. I'm, I'm going to teach myself all these techniques and strategies. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back again. Like I'll give myself a period within the year. I'll be back in court. But between doing that, I was like, do you know what? It's just time to give up. There's no way I can win and get what I want. And I was always one of them people who was like, I don't see how dads can walk away from the children. But when you're in that situation, you, know, you realise you realize that they're not walking away from the children. They're walking away from the system. For the process, yeah. And, and the process. Yeah, it's broken them, yeah. Because that's a big problem. And lucky enough, like I said, once again, Chris came to the rescue. Like, Nathan, just do what you need to do. You've got our back. You know what I mean? So I never gave up. So, yeah, so over a period of like six, seven months, I was researching. I was like, it was like I was doing a law degree by myself I was just like researching the system and, and how I can work with it better and then one day it was an August bank holiday I was in Lincoln the kids were over Derby way my mate Chris once again guardian angel rang me I went Nathan to come past the pub Carmelo and Nathan Jr are in the pub got no shoes on they've got no trousers on the nappies are sagging a bit I can't see them mum anywhere I was like no problem what pub are they in so, this, so he told me, and I don't know how, but oh, I do. I was like, Michael Schumacher, down the A46, down the 52. I'll take the speeding tickets. I'll take them. I'll take any speeding tickets because I'm getting back <laughs> today. And literally, I walked into, this is the gospel. I walked into the pub and I walked through the pub. I walked out into the beer garden and Nathan Jr. was in the arms of a woman I'd never met. So I just picked him up. I walked back through the pub. Picked Carmelo up and walked out. Put them in my car. And lucky enough, like I said, my mum only lives like 10 minutes away. So I went to my mum's, cleaned them up, rang the police and said, you know, this is the situation. They're not going back. Rang social services, told them they're not going back. You know, you can come and find me at this address. Come and talk to me Monday morning. But right now, they're not going back. Yes, there's a, there's a court order in place. But I'm exercising my rights as a dad that, you know, I've got safeguarding concerns. They're not going back. And it was literally an hour and a half after I'd already took the kids. 
that the mum rang me and told me that she'd lost the kids. An hour and a half. Like, not 10 minutes. Not 15 minutes. Not even half an hour. One and a half hours before she realised the kids were missing. At that point, I was like, I've got them. I walked in and I got them, like, an hour and a half ago. Like, they're coming with me now. And then I had her ring me, her mum ring me, her dad ring me, her brother ring me, going, bring her kids back. They're her kids. They're not yours. You've got no rights to the children. <laughs> Takes two people to make a child. It's not even the parents' rights to see the child. It's the children's rights to see the parents. So I was like, well, this is a bit quicker than the year I wanted to be back in court. But, you know, I, I feel I'm ready for it now. So, like I said, at this point, I'd gone bankrupt. I had no money left to be able to afford solicitor's fees and, and things like that. And I knew that it only cost £237 to make a court application. So to go to court, it only cost £237. That's it. Like the biggest... Still a lot, to be honest, but yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> but compared to the 80000 I'd already spent... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, was pe- it was peanuts. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So now I'm back in the court process with no legal representation. Like I'm literally doing it all by myself, talking to the judges, filling out paperwork, filling out statements, talking to her barristers, because she, somehow she was able to get legal aid. I don't know how, but she got legal aid, so she was able to have a solicitor and a barrister. And here's little old me. Yeah, I've just spent a couple of years already in the court system, so I kind of know how it works. But, you know, now my head is is so straight and so full of knowledge that I knew I could do better myself. Uh, and I knew that I could get my point across. And I knew I wasn't going to lose my rag and, and things like that. And I knew that I needed to be child-focused. So I took all the attention away from me, all the attention away from her, and was child-focused. And, yeah, about four years ago, I was able to win full custody of the children. And it was five years on my daughter's birthday since they last actually seen the mum because the mum only wants full custody him. like she's took me back at least twice a year ever since so for the last five years I've been at least twice a year I've been back in the court system but every time it says I need full custody he needs to see them in a contact centre it's like well that's not going to happen wow that is all she puts on the on the application and the same allegations get thrown up you know with the sledgehammer and the sexual assault like, well, I've got evidence from all, all way back, so it makes no difference to me. So throw whatever you want at me, but I'm not coming at you anymore. Like, this is what's right for the children. So, yeah, like I said, 28 times I've been in, in the courtroom with her and my children. But I've now got an order where she can't take me back to court for at least three years. That's probably my biggest win in life. I did it without a solicitor, without barristers, just with my knowledge and, and what I learned and what I took away from the process myself. But, yeah, it wasn't easy. But I knew I couldn't let that have the same mental effect on me that it did previously. Because I knew that if I'd let all these allegations and accusations affect me, then it was going to affect my children. And I knew that if I went back into that mental state, that the children would get taken off me full stop. Luckily enough, I was able not to get into that mental state again. Let's reflect on this mental health journey, mate, given that roller coaster you've been on. So, A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Nathan who was in that chaotic childhood household fighting for attention and rebelling, the 21-year-old Nathan who had just been made redundant, or the Nathan in the grips of that depression, seven stone lighter and not able to see his kids, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Reach out to people. Don't be ashamed. If you know something's affecting you, talk to someone. Like There's no shame. 
so my son, me and Nathan Jr., we have a song. I've got a different song with all my kids. But mine and Nathan Jr. is just the two of us, the Will Smith version. And in that, there's a line that says, there ain't no shame in crying in, as long as you learn from it. So what I'm telling people is, don't use the stereotypical man up, don't cry, just get on with life. Have a good cry, let it out, talk to someone. Because without talking, no one knows where you are in life. You don't know how to get from A to B, you don't know how to process. But someone can get you from A to B if you spoke to them. Like I wish I listened to the people that were talking to me back then, but I didn't. But it has shaped me into a better person now. But now I know that, now I've got no shame in saying, at 38 year old, I have a good cry. Good cry, let it all out, move on. And I tell him, you don't need the attention. Be yourself. Don't try and fit into to any kind of stereotype. Don't try and fit into any crowd. Just be yourself. You know what I mean? Good things will come. But yeah, most importantly, just talk. And I think I say that to everyone now. Like, just talk about it. If something's upsetting you or affecting you, before it gets to a level of of depression, talk about it. Because you don't even know you're depressed. Right. Mm. It just becomes your part of life. Or be abused. A lot yeah. of men don't know they're being abused no. either until it's already yeah. over. So, until it's over and, and then you realise. So listen, talk. They're two the most important things you'll ever do in life. Like, But me, back then I was a talker. And now I need to listen. I give a, a lot of advice out now. And I should have took a lot of advice back then. <laughs> uh, it all comes full circle, man. Yeah, gone full circle. So yeah, just talk. That That's the main thing. And just... Just know your self-strength as well. Because and even back then when I was the rebellious person and I always found a way to get back on top. Always know who you are and your self-worth. And you're just as powerful when you're at the bottom of the cup as you are at the top. If anything, you're more powerful at the bottom because you know you've got to climb your way back up. And, th- and that's the way I look at life now. <laughs> We've talked about your mental health journey, mate. Let's now talk about this amazing platform, Dad's Advocate, you've built. So firstly, tell me how the idea for it began and how you've taken it to where it is today. Okay, so basically the idea of Dad's Advocates came from just my journey. And I knew that I could help other dads in the system and in in the process. And it basically started back in the end of October 2021. I was flicking through social medias, uh, I think it was Instagram, and, you know, I'm not a big social media head, but I've seen some posts from a couple of dads on there, so I was like, oh, I'll just give you a couple, a bit of advice, you know, I'll just tell you about my journey and what to expect and what I did within the process, and that's basically how it started, and then in the December 2021, 20, he messaged me, I think it was like December the 12th, uh, and told me he had a court date coming up and what advice could I give him and this, that and the other. So I spoke to him a bit and December the 22nd, he messaged me and said, I've got my daughter home for Christmas. And like, all thanks to you. Like, he's not spent anything on solicitors. Literally the advice and what I taught him, he was able to get custody of his daughter a couple of days before Christmas. So it was like the best Christmas present he could ever wish for. So over the next couple of weeks, I was like, ah, oh, this is something I need to do. I need to get out there more. So on December the 28th, I decided to start a CIC called Dad's Advocates, where I was going to help dads 
I was going to teach him the same techniques that I taught myself. I was going to talk to dads. I was going to get them to see how you go from fighting against your high conflict ex. So we don't use the word narcissist. We use high conflict just because narcissist gets thrown around a lot. So we use high conflict. Yeah, so I, I teach people how to deal with a high conflict ex and how to get out of that mindset of you going against her and staying child focused. Uh, so, yeah, so that started on the January the 28th, 2022. So just over a year ago. So I was, I was helping loads of people, giving loads of little different tips out and techniques. And, you know, I, I knew that I never wanted to take money out of it myself. I knew that I wanted to always be a CIC or a charity because then I can put it back into the process. And so as well as helping dads, we like to challenge the gender inequalities in the system. So, you know, I talked to social services. I talked to CAFCAS. I even talked to a committee in New York about passing a bill for 50-50 parenting in New York. And like I said, we've only just been going over a year now. But in February of 2022, less than a month after I'd started, I was nominated for this award, the first annual fatherhood awards. I was nominated for the best campaign in my category was the likes of the ex-footballer Ashley Kane and his charity, Lad Baby, all the work he does for the Trussell Trust and things like that. So it come to June of 2022 and it's the award ceremony. I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to win. I'm going up against two high-profile people here. But I thought, you know, it's good networking event. It's good to talk to other dads out there because literally it was just about dads and fatherhoods and what fathers are doing in the world of, for example, there was like the best podcast, there was best networking group, all these things that dads are doing. So I was like, well, I'll just go along. I'll, I'll have a laugh. I'll meet some other dads and see what I can take from it because obviously these people had been doing it for a long time, you know. Like there was Nigel Clark from CBBS. He was there. He was up for awards and and things like that. So you know, I was I was rubbing up with people like that. I won the award for best campaign, which I, I wasn't ready for. And in fact, I'll tell you a little story about that. So we got to the awards and it was free champagne, and you know, I was getting some drinks, and then they shouted us through to the the auditorium to go for the awards. I was like, all right then, no worries. I was like, maybe I need a wee, maybe I don't. But I should have took my own advice, like I do with my kids when I go on a long journey, like. Go to the toilet before you go anywhere. Okay, that's number one rule. You leave the house, you go to the toilet. But I thought, ah, oh, no, I'll be all right. I thought they're just going to get straight. It's the first ever time they've done these awards. So they're just going to get straight into the awards and I'll be straight back out. And I'm not going to win anyway. So it don't really make any difference to me. So I'm sitting there and they have guest speakers on. And 45 minutes goes by and no awards have been shouted out or anything. I was like, do you know what? My knees are shaking. I'm, I'm like this. on, like proper shaking. Like, really, but, and I'm like, do you know what? Sorry, I'm going. So I got up and I walked out, went to the toilet. And obviously, it just after the pandemic, so, you know, it was the, when you wash your hands, sing happy birthday to yourself. And normally, you know, when you're in a rush, all blokes do it, quick wash, rub on your trousers or whatever, and you're out. But another dad came in. Another dad came in, so, like, I'm like, I've got to do it properly now, aren't I? So I'm, like, doing happy birthday to myself. And I'm talking to this dad. And I was like, right, I've got to go back in you know, because I've left the wife and things like that. So I've got to go back in. And as I walk in the room, the room's silent. And my wife's just about to walk out the door. And she goes, it's you. I went, well, who else would it be? You know what I mean? I've gone to the toilet. Of course I'm coming back. She goes, no, you've won. And like I look up and like the Dad's Advocates logo's on the board. Like, everyone's sat in silence because I'm sitting there having a wee. And I was like, well, what do I do now? Like, so I threw my hands up in the air and went, woo! And I ran down the centre aisle. And for whatever reason, I mean, I'm only like five foot six and I had the tightest suit on. 
I decided to rather than walk down the side of the stage and up the six steps, I'd jump up the stage. Luckily enough, I landed on my feet. And then they gave me the award. I was like, oh, great, thanks. Really appreciate it. But then they gave me a microphone. <laughs> and I was like, I've not prepared anything. And all I said was, well, that's a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> I get nominated for an award. I win an award after six months. And all I can say is that's a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, won, I, won, <laughs> so I win this award. And, it, and it's great. I mean, for me, I was just humble being nominated for the award. But to win, it just gives me so much. It just gives more passion and more want to be doing this. So, you know, I get through the award and, you know, I'm having another good couple of months. Then I get invited to talk at the World Leader Summit. So to 96 Nations in December, I'm talking on the effect it has on dads and children after separation. You know, and I've got this massive stage to be speaking on. Like 96 Nations. So I've gone from being an electrical engineer, being a car manufacturer, to now talking on a world stage. It's just crazy. It blows my mind that what I'm doing, not just me because I've got a team behind me now, but what we're doing for dads is having this much effect on people. And like I said earlier, I'm on a committee for passing a bill in New York. New York, USA. Like I'm a 38-year-old bloke sat in Lincoln and... Right now, I'm in my caravan office, you know what I mean? And I'm talking to people in, like, USA. You know, I've worked with people in Canada, Australia. People from Pakistan have been messaging me to help them with these custody cases. But, yes, yeah, so I talk at the, this World Leader Summit, and when I tell my story, I get emotional about it, as you probably hear on my voice. And, obviously, you can see me physically, and, you know, you can see see the emotions behind it all. About half an hour after I'd, I'd done my speech on the World Leader Summit stage, there was a woman talking about empowering women. She was really good. But then when people were asking her questions, they were asking questions about me. They were going, we've just heard from a dad who's fighting for dads out there. What have you got to say about that? You're sitting there talking about empowering women, yet he's sitting there crying because he stopped from seeing his children. I was like, whoa, 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 this, this is not what I wanted. <laughs> it's, well, it's nice that it had that effect on people. So, yeah, so over the year, I mean, we're now, what, just over a year in. I'm about to become full charity status. So I've passed the the initial improvement. About four weeks, I'll be full charity status. You know, I have dads from all over the place come to me. We recently launched an app. So we've now got a Dads Advocates app that you can download. And that came out of nowhere, really. So the idea with the app is... So where I was taking all these calls and teaching dads one-on-one on how to deal with things, I was like, surely there's a better way to be doing it. So we decided to build a community. I call it the coalition. So just a community of people, which means when I go forward to all these social services, courts and CAFCAS and, you know, the government this year and, and things like that to get changing legislations. And I've got a group of people behind me that I can say, look, this is what's happening. So that's the idea of the coalition. But within that coalition, we teach you how to self-represent in court. So there's different sections in there. Like I've got my legal team and other members of my team to talk through the application of the court and, or how to deal with the courts and what to expect and how to deal with the ex and how to deal with new partners and how to deal with your mental health in there. That come because I wanted to build a community group. But obviously, when you're going through the custody battle, a lot of men come off of social media just because... A lot of people go on there and take screenshots and send it to court and it's just easier. So I was like, right, well, we'll build a community and I'll have my own website. So we're building the website, but then 
in this day and age, who has a laptop or a MacBook or a computer to be able to sit and, and go on it? You're always on your phone. So literally, we've spent three months building this whole website, this whole, I've got my own server, I've got everything you could want. And then all of a sudden, I was like, it's not going to work. It needs to be done on an app. So it took us three weeks to build an app. And it was launched, I think, two weeks ago on Apple and last week on Google. So yeah, so now it's all, so you can just get it on your phone and you, you teach yourself or you, you go on your phone. And the feedback we have from it is great. You know, in there, there's like forums so we can talk to each other and, and ask questions. So yeah, it's just it's just mind-blowing how quick Dad's Advocates just took off. So literally, I had two weeks off at Christmas because, you know, I was like, I need time with my children. I've spent a year building Dad's Advocates to what it is that I need some time out because I've lived this life 24-7. As you can imagine, when I'm talking to the Canadians and Americans, they're on a whole different time zone. So I'm talking at like 2, 3, 4 in the morning, but I'm still going to do a school run at 8 in the morning. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So so I was like, no, I need time off. So then I literally had the whole of January off as well because I, thought, I spoke to my mentor and he was like, Nathan, you've got a team of people you need to learn to let go. Let your team do some bits. Otherwise, you're going to go back to where you were before and Dad's Advocates is going to fail. And to me, it's not about Dad's Advocates failing. It's about failing the dads out there that need my help, that need Dad's Advocates. Like, for me, me and my team, we take no money out of it. Obviously, we're a CIC charity. But for me, it's about what we can do to help dads now, but also the next generation. So I can help dads now go through the court process and help them get that safe, meaningful and consistent contact with their children. But the stigma that we've had for many years isn't going to change overnight. So now it's about what I can do for the next generation. Mm. It's what I can do for my kids. So they're not put in this position themselves. It'll break you. And yeah. I knew that if I didn't have that break, then it would break me. And so my team took over and I'm so grateful that they did because they've done an amazing job. And already this year, I mean, it's not a brag, I mean, some people might say it's a humble brag, but already this year, Dad's Advocates have been nominated for another two awards. So we've already been nominated for Best Professional Service Provider and also a Hero Award. And it's, it just blows my mind that within a year, I've had all this success to come from what I went through, that big negative in my life, and to be at rock bottom. I'm telling you now, I'm standing on top of the world. Like, and I'm looking down at everyone. Like, who can I help? How can I help? When can I help? To the point, I was even in Wales a couple of days ago with a dad that hasn't seen his child for a year and a half. Now he's got every other weekend, days in the weekend, school holidays. But even when we were sat in that courtroom, I was sat there and there was other people in there. And I was telling this dad I was working with, I was like, they're not going to get anything because they're not going in there with the right attitude. And literally he said, no, no, no. How do you know that? I was like, you watch. And 40 minutes late, they were storming out, effing you and blinding. It. Yeah. And I says, I just knew because I knew what attitude they were going in there with. I saw it and I couldn't do anything mm. about it because they're too late in that system to mm. be able to change it. And obviously within two minutes, you can't change the whole person's mindset. I could see the old me in them and what I did. So, yeah. So, you know, I've helped or we've helped. I can't even tell you how many dads we've helped now. It's just unbelievable. And even the amount of stepmoms that I get messaging me saying, you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. I've had grandparents message me. I've even had children's mums message me who they were going up against to say thank you for this. Because, you know, 
We've got a good following on social media. And, you know, you can't not let anyone talk to you on social media. So, you know, I get a lot of females on there. and But I think it's important that they see our perspective as well. I've lived their perspective. I've, I know what they're after and I know what they want. And a lot of time, it's if I can get through to the women as well, that it's not about what's happened with you and your ex. It's about the children. They are the priority. And mm. that's what it's all about. The issue of yeah. fathers and shall we say, divorced fathers in the family court system has been, I would argue, largely been put in the public eye by groups like Fathers for Justice. And they were quite controversial at the time. And I'm sort of thinking in the mid-noughties, they did a lot of publicity stunts and stuff like that. And you're changing that perspective, I think, for the better. And I'm, I'm not offering an opinion on their group, by the way, either. But just tell me what your perspective on them and the public's perception of fathers and divorced fathers in the public eye currently is and what you want to change. Okay, so for me, I'll tell you now, they have done wonders to get the issue brought forward. Back when they were standing on Parliament... In, they were a joke, uh, by the way. Batman people laughed at them back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, people laughed at them, but also the dads that were in the midst of these battles, for myself, I was like, yes, you go do it. You go do it because it's getting it out there. The issue I've got, they've got the right message, but they went the wrong way about it. And I think by doing that, looking at it now, by doing that, it's took the whole thing and turned it back into a negative. Okay. So what I want to do is take all the positives that dads are and make the world see that it's a positive. Okay. So for example, the law is children have rights to see both parents. 50-50, both parents, end of. But because we've lived in this stigma of men are abusers, men are perpetrators, men are horrible people and women are victims, because we've lived in this stigma for so long, it's what sticks. And that's why the mums get primary care. And don't forget, when a, a mum gives birth, she has maternity Men leave. don't. <laughs> men get two weeks. <laughs> men don't. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. paid. Do you know what I mean? So, so obviously, yes, mum is the primary carer. But that needs to change. When my children were born, obviously my children would be my last name, but their mum wasn't my last name. She she was her own last name. But the child on the children's birth band, it's got the mum's name because that's what they automatically put down. So physically I've got nothing that says that my kids are are Wilsons, apart from the birth certificate, because the day they were born, they weren't. Because they don't these questions aren't asked. For example, midwives, they only ever talk to mums. I got full custody of my children and the health visitors were still asking me, where's mum? I was like, you don't need to talk to mum. I've got full custody. Like, talk to me. I'm the dad. And they're like, oh no, we've only got enough details for one parent on the form. Like, and it's always mum because she gives birth. I was like, no, 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 that needs to change now as well. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like, when I talk to dad, I'm like, and they're like, what can I do? Ring the health visitor. If mum's not giving you an update, ring the health visitor. Ask them directly what's happening. So things like that need to change. Do you think also part of the problem is that there is a narrative that people refuse to believe that men can ever be victims of domestic abuse as well? 100%. 100%. And so along with Dad's Advocates, we run a male abuse service as well. So I run a perpetrate programme because I believe in rehabilitation. And I also I physically wrote my own victim programme, like a 12-step victim programme because there's nothing out there. So what I did was, before I did all that, I went on and I got the Freedom Programme. It's only £12, you can buy it online. 
but there's two versions. There's the female version and the male version. So I read the female version first, thinking, right, I'll get their perspective on it. And all the way through, and this was written in 1996, by the way, all the way through that it says, women are victims, women are victims, women are victims. And in the male version, it says, men are perpetrators, men are perpetrators, men are perpetrators. Like, when that's not the case. So one in three abuse victims are At male. least, by the way. At least. Yeah, at least. I know a lot of are, men who have come to me are, privately who have been domestically abused and they would never, ever report yeah. it. So at least one in three. Now, I, I understand that two in three are potentially female and I understand that. But one in three is still a very high number. And at least only 15% of them males talk about being abused. And only 4.4% of them actually get any help for it. And that's because there's nothing out there. So, you, you know, the court system has been designed up as flaws in it where it shows that men are, are perpetrators. And the problem is, like I said before, when you're in that courtroom, so men are built to show anger all the time. Okay, It's just the way we're built. We, we could be upset and we still look angry. My kids ask me why I'm angry all the time. I'm like, I'm not, I'm happy. But that's not your happy face. Well, I can't walk around with a smile on my face all the time, son. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But we're built. That's how we, we're built. We just show anger all the time. We look angry. We show anger. And because of the bitterness and, and the stigma, maybe we are angry. That's what gets portrayed in court. Where a female, they show the vulnerability. More easily, yeah. They yeah. show the upset. They're more, they yeah. the easier than males do. And that's the stigma that I need to get out of. That's the stigma that you know I teach people, mm. change people's mindset on how and to maybe and maybe how vulnerability is shown or displayed differently, perhaps in men and women. Yeah, you know we're, we're working hard at it. Like I said, it's a slow process, but we're getting there. That's the main thing we're getting there because the court system is very flawed. But like I said, that's just because it's the way it's been for years. Once you're in a stigma, you know what it's like. You're a rebellious teen kid. You're rebellious all your life because you play mm. up to that stigma. And that's You're still fighting the system, system now, mate. Now. Even <laughs> there's a, there's a psychoanalysis point there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it's going to be hard. But I've seen changes. I've seen changes happen. A lot of them have been when I've been there, and I can see a change. And you you know, I've like I said, I've had two different social services reach out to me in two different counties to work with them, help them change their policies and procedures, help them train their staff on how to deal with dads. So, you know, they're recognising now that there needs to be a change. But what we've also got to understand is, like, at least 80% of social workers are female. If the system's designed to give the females what they want, and it's female-led, that's what's always going to happen. Subconsciously or consciously, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we need to, like I said, that's why when I coach, oh, that's, coach dads, talk to dads, uh, yeah, I say coach them. When I coach them, that's where I change their mindset on how to rethink a lot of people, I mean, I've, I've had mums say to me, oh, you're just trying to teach them to play the system. No, I'm teaching them how to work with the system. There's a difference between playing the system and working with the system. And that's the big difference mm. that I'm teaching people. Let's reflect now. Where do you think you'd be without dad's advocates? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know because now mm. this is my purpose. After everything I've been through, and especially after the last year, I can't see me doing anything else at all. You know, I've dabbled in security. I've, I've done private security work. I've been an electrical engineer, but I never had a sole purpose in life. And a lot of people say your children are your purpose. They're just along <laughs> for the ride now. Like, at least you're they're, honest. <laughs> they're, 
my kid, my kids are dad's advocates lovers. They've got t-shirts, they've got beanie hats, they've got fridge magnets on their lockers at school. Like my daughter's eight, the others are seven, seven, and three. And they've all got dad's advocate t-shirts. They've all got their own colour beanie hats because they're all like different colours. And I ordered some beanie hats with dad's advocates on and they were all like, where's mine? So then I had to order new ones and they all had to have their own different colours. My son, who's seven, like Nathan Jr., he's already planning on taking over dad's advocates. We were talking the other day. He said, Dad, do you know what I want to do when I grow up? I said, what? He goes, take your place. Wow. I was like, what? What, is head of the family? He goes, no, he's dad's advocate. Like, he's seven. How did that make you feel? Like, I'm welling up now, but it's crazy. Just crazy that I'm having an effect on a seven-year-old like that. Ooh. Take your time, mate. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, mate. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> I've done, I've done well for the last hour and a half. <laughs> but no, it brings me so much pride and joy. Do you know what I mean? That my kids shout about dad's advocates every time they can. My three-year-old son, he doesn't even call me dad anymore. He calls me dad's advocate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like the teachers go, "Where's your dad?" No, it's dad's advocates. Like your dad's there. No, it's dad's advocates. Like he's three. And Is that, that your proudest that's what he achievement? Hundred percent. 100%. Yeah, like, everyone always says that the proudest moment in your life was when your children are born. I don't believe that. Even, even when they were born, I was like, mate, that's just cliche. Like, how can you say that's your proudest moment? You well, you've done, done something, but yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You've had a bit of playtime and your sperm done the work, you know what I mean? Like, your little tadpoles have done the work. Like, you've done nothing. But to watch my kids grow up to what they are now, knowing what they've been through and knowing that they want to like, to me now, it's about a legacy. Like, I know Dad's Advocates is going to be my legacy. I know that makes me sound a bit... No, not at all, egotistical. mate. I want a legacy to uh, be there for Vent, so... Yeah, but I know that when I leave this world, Dad's Advocates is all going to Your be... Your impact up. will be clear, like, mate. People are going to be talking about Dad's Advocates for years to come, and I feel that now. That's what I want from it, to change the whole system and the whole dynamic of life for generations to come. But yeah, definitely the proudest moment of my life is when my children say hmm. they want to take over. What has it taught you about yourself, mate? Yeah, it's taught me that I am more determined than I thought I was. It's taught me that I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. Like I go to the gym and you know I can I can pick the weights up and I can push the weights and I can do that. But mentally, I was never there. Present, present. But now I know I was stronger than I ever thought I was. Even in that darkest time, to come out of that, I must have been strong because you don't get from the bottom to the top without being strong. It's taught me a lot about my self-worth and, yeah, my strength and my self-worth. Like, and nothing's impossible. Like, I don't look at life now and think I can't achieve anything. That's what it's taught me in life. We have come to our final topic of conversation, mate, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general chat about mental health, a little bit of quick fire stuff. So firstly, how is your mental health? Tip top, honestly. What honestly. age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I'm going to have to say late on, 20, 21, before I thought anything. Before that, I always thought it was mm. just me being a kid and me being, how, to, how do you say it? Yeah, just me being was a kid. Was it the unemployment that That's perhaps it. made you realise? 
Yeah, yeah, that I wasn't the top person I thought I was. <laughs> you got humbled. I realised yeah. I, I still had that diamond. Yeah, I was oh, humbled. Like, be, getting like, humbled changes your perspective on life, bro. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely being unemployed showed me and, and humbled me and made mm. me realise I had to grow up. But then obviously, then you, you start to reflect. And you think, ah, well, that triggered something, which then triggered something else and then triggered something else. But I just kept everything bottled up because, like I said, when I was younger, like now, mental health spoke about a lot. But obviously, when I was younger, I mean, I'm not... It was, really mate, it wasn't a thing when... I'm, when I'm I was 10 younger, years younger than you, and it wasn't a thing when I was growing up, let alone when you were, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and even now, I can still look back and think, yes, that had a knock-on effect to everything. But yeah, I'd say about 2021 when, when I was unemployed. Okay. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like, on the one hand, a big burden or moment or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, maybe something easy, insignificant and quite normal to do? So Chris, I knew it was going to be Chris. Chris, you get a lot of shout outs on this podcast, mate. I hope you listen to this. Yeah, I'll make sure he's listening. Don't worry. Yeah, it was Chris once again, like my guardian angel. He obviously seen the way I was going. And he obviously knew that the way I was living my life wasn't the best. And I think it was him that finally sat down and said, Nathan, what's going on? And I think it took for him to ask me the question for me to talk about it. Because obviously, I've been carrying this boulder on my shoulders for all these years, but not really knowing what it was. But then when someone asks you and you just spill it out, it feels like it's it's lifted, but only for a moment. Because you've still got work to do to get out of it. So yeah, he lifted the rock for a bit. And then he must have just got pissed <laughs> off with me, so pull it back on me or something. I don't know. Cheers, Chris. <laughs> Not all good. Not all. We'll have to we'll have chuck in a little bit, chuck in criticism there, just to, just to keep him humble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is fault. <laughs> we spoke there about triggers, mate. So what things in life do you find that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Nothing triggers me now. Nothing triggers me now because I know where I am now and I've learned all my triggers. Or I think I've learned all my triggers. But at the same time, I know that where I'm at now in my mental health, I know I've always got to be best version of me for my kids. So if I have an issue, I talk to someone about it now. But back when I was younger, people just looking at me funny, like would trigger me. Comes back to that anger, and doesn't it? Like, paranoia and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like me and Chris once again, we were in a pub one day, and you know, at this time I had shoulder length hair, I had matching headbands to go with my outfits. You know, that's the stage I was like, you know, like I was at me David Beckham stage. Oh, David oh thank Beckham God. What about a cane row stage? That, I was like, that, oh, thank God. I've had cornrows as well, by the way. But yeah, <laughs> I, went, I look like a Jean Paul. But yeah, but we were sat in this pub and there were six other lads. Never met them before. They were buying me and Chris drinks. We were just chatting. And one of them said to me, you look like you should be on Hollyoaks. Now I take that as a compliment. You know, you, you're telling me I'm, I'm good enough to be on Kintelli. Like, but back then when he said that to me, I was like, what, you're calling me gay? And I've tried to take on six lads. Like, what's going on there? There's obviously something not right in my head to make me switch like that for no reason. Just because he said I look like I should be on telly. Once again, Chris had to bail me out of that one. But <laughs> I think it just comes back from all the suppressed anger from being the black sheep and always trying to find that attention. I think if I'd never got the attention, that's what triggered me a lot. I needed that attention to get through life. And that's why I was always centre of attention, always a class clown. And I think up until 
a few years ago, I always needed attention. Like I'll openly admit, all through adulthood, I've needed attention. But now, I'm clearly at a stage where I don't need it. Conversely then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked? My number one go-to is Love always that. music. I played percussion and a brass band for 16 years. Like I've been to Germany with a brass band when I was 21 and I was very good at what I did. So music is always my go-to. Like people always sit there and say, well, you know, when I'm depressed, I need to listen to the, the slow classical music or if I'm on a run, I need to listen to, you know, some upbeat dance euphoria music or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But each mood I'm feeling has a different effect on my music as well like that. But uh, as long as I've got music on, I'm happy. Like I'll sit in the office, not working away, and if a dad ever has a call with me, they'll hear music in the background. Like normally, you know, I try not to have calls around half past ten because I like to watch pop, uh, listen to Popmaster on radio. It's not on video two anymore, mate. He's gone. He's gone. Ken Bruce is gone, mate. I know, just gone, Annie. You know what I mean? In March, he's gone. So yeah, you know, I've got a couple of weeks left. Got a couple of weeks left. But you know, even when I was on the phone to my legal team the other day, I had the Temptations on in the background, bit of Motown classic, you know. And like I said, my kids, my kids, we've all got a different tune each. You know, my, me and my daughter, it's a Billy Joel song. Me and Nathan Jr., it's Will Smith song. Me and Ethan, it's the Jackson 5. Me and Hunter, it's Jason Mraz. So they're all, all different variations of music, all different tastes. But music is my big go-to. There's not very often a time I've not got my headphones in or I've got music on in the background. We're very similar people, That's mate. It. Yeah, and going to the gym, you know, just because... Healthy body, healthy mind, healthy life, really. You've always got to look after yourself. But obviously, I've, I've tried other techniques, like just going fishing. Like I know a lot of people like to go fishing and things like that. I, I can't do that. That's too no, boring I can't for do me. It. I went fishing once and I got the rod stuck in a tree. When I when I <laughs> went back to cast it, it got stuck in the tree and I just left it hanging in the tree and walked away. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. That was my one put off. I can't do things like that because I don't like the silence. If I've got music on it on my own, I'm happy. But I can't just sit in silence like that. You know, people like to go on a long drive. Not really. I mean, I love, I love driving, but now it's music, the gym, or just being with my kids. Like my dad, like when we used to go on holiday, I always used to say to my dad, why aren't we doing anything you want to do? And he always said to me, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. I was like, you're just an arsehole or what? You know, but that's what I literally thought. And I said that to him one day. But now I'd rather sit and watch my kids in a soft play or running around the back garden than doing something for myself. So, yeah. Music is number one, mm. always number one. Seeing the kids happy in the gym. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health, mate? Now, it can be self-help related, doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, maybe a podcast, a play, an album, anything you want. The best book, this is going to sound like I'm plugging it, but the best book for my mental health is the one that I wrote myself. <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> just saying. So it is coming out this year, but for me... It didn't even start off as a book. Like for me, I was working night shifts and I just needed I just needed something to do. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I've got all these memories in my head that I need to get rid of. So I'm going to write about it. And I'll just write it down. You know, like when people say they journal. Literally, I did that about two years ago. And now it's a 31 chapter book. Send me, send me it when it comes out, mate. Yeah. I'll make sure I buy a copy. Other than that, you know, like I said, music is a big go-to. I'm not, I'm not a big reader. If I read a book, it's got to be an autobiography of someone that I'm interested in. I don't have yeah, the time fair. to sit and read a book. Unfortunately, I've never been one to be able to read, really. Not that I can't read, yeah. I just don't like it. So, you know, there's a couple of albums that I listen to on rotation. 
But, you know, then again, they change like from like the Temptations' greatest hits or Frank Sinatra's greatest hits or even Eminem, the Eminem show. They're three of the best albums I, I listen to or Justin Timberlake, Justified, Craig David, Born to Do It because that's my era of music, do you know what I mean? So there, there's not many albums I can listen to all the way through, but they're some of the albums that I can, that I go to all the time. If there was a mantra yeah. in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> now you put me on the spot. <laughs> now you put me on the spot. And okay. That I can't answer. We'll move on to the last one. I'll let you. I'll let you stew on it. Maybe you'll come back to me in about a week's time and go, Fred. I've, I've thought the answer. I've thought the answer. Yeah. As my final question, mate, before we wrap up, and it's a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? don't think there's a lot that we can do. I think it comes down to the individual. The individual has to realise you have to talk. That is simple. And I know everyone, and I know everyone says it, but without talking, no one knows what you're going through. Do you know what I mean? And there's no shaming, like I said before. There's no shaming crime. There's no shaming talking. Probably everyone else has already been there before. You're not alone. Like we see so many different people from different walks of life think they've got everything, and they still have mental health breakdowns. People who've got nothing have mental health breakdowns. People in the middle have mental health breakdowns because we all live life differently. But without opening up and talking, we can't overcome anything. And I think as men, we need to get rid of the man up caveman stigma. But that's not going to change unless we change mm. it ourselves. And on that note, Nathan Wilson, my friend, this has been an absolutely amazing podcast. I love talking to you. I love talking to you off air. I love talking to you here. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me, mate. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A massive thank you to Nathan Wilson for being my special guest, telling me about the story of Dad's Advocates and for letting me check in with him. I will put all of Dad's Advocates' social media links and website links and where you can find out more about their work in the show notes. And I will sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe, buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the next Just Checking In Live. That is Saturday, 15th of April, 2023 at the Victoria in Dalston. All of those links are also available on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Okay.